Go ahead and uh, be seated. A uh, couple of things just to uh, update you on. Uh, I asked you last week to pray about uh, me seeing a pulmonologist. Uh, when we first were talking about that, it was like the middle of March. Then it was the first of March. Got a call last week. There's been a cancellation. I get to see him on Tuesday. So thank you. Keep praying, okay? And uh, hopefully we'll find, not only find out something, but get something done. Uh, also, Tanya, last week we uh, prayed for Tanya Oldham. She was going to have surgery, uh, triple bypass on Monday. She's already home, folks. So, uh, you know, anything you can do to help and just to encourage them. And then uh, we had been praying for Craig uh, Maggot. He's been released from the hospital and is... Uh, in a, in a rehab facility doing physical therapy for a while. He was down for quite a bit. And so uh, uh, they've got to get him back on his feet and, and uh, all of that. So a uh, lot of good news, right? A lot of good news. Now, I'm sure there's also some bad news. And you may be going through a bad time. Don't let somebody else's good news discourage you. Let it encourage you because if God can do it for them... He can do it for you, right? And um, you never know. It's always darkest before the dawn. And so uh, let's remember to uh, pray about that. And then also, uh, coming up this Wednesday, can you believe it will be a year since uh, Rachel Freeman went to be with the Lord? And so uh, we need to pray for Michael and for Jody and for Daniel. This is a rough stretch. Right? Can you understand that? This has been a rough stretch. Going through the holidays and, and then facing all of this. And it doesn't go away just because, oh, well, it's been a year. It doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. And uh, they are not grieving without hope. If you ever talk to them, they've got a lot of hope. But it still hurts. It still hurts. And so how many of you will commit to, especially this Wednesday, that as often as the Holy Spirit brings the Freeman family to mind, that you will be uh, there ready to breathe a word of prayer for them. Just hold your hands up. Okay? And let's do it now, okay? Father, with everything that we see that um, has been good and the, the change in our prayer requests from last week. We thank you that you're the God who knows, you're the God who hears, but you're also the God who sovereignly plans things, and you know our needs even before we ask. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have of joining you, Lord Jesus, as you were the one who prays for us and all believers you ever live to make intercession for us. And so we're not changing you. We're not manipulating you. We are joining with you in the plans you already have. And we're joining with you in the prayers you're already praying. And thank you for that privilege. And thank you for answered prayer. And now, Lord, as we think about Michael and Jody, and as we think about Daniel... And we think about the incredible testimonies they have shared throughout this last year. We thank you for the times they've been able to talk about Jesus, talk about heaven, talk about grace, talk about the death of Christ, talk about the hope that they have because they are living examples. Paul said, if our hope is in this life only, we're of all men most miserable. And I thank you, Father, that they are living examples to all of us and to a lost world that our hope better not be just in this life. There is a life to come, and Jesus has paid the price so that we can enter into that life for eternity. May lots and lots of people continue to hear the gospel, continue to see Jesus in the Freeman family. 
May many people be saved. Many people be encouraged. And we thank you for all of that. But today, this church family, we turn our attention to those three precious people. And dear Lord, we pray that you would comfort Michael, comfort Jody, comfort Daniel. Draw them together and show them your grace and mercy even now as we pray. And let them feel the presence of the Lord and the peace that passes understanding. And as they go through this time this next week, continue to uphold them by your power. And we pray this as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the name of Jesus, and let the church say amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Okay, take your Bibles. And let's go to uh, where we were last week. And we're going to go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And um, we're going to look at some of these things that we call the Ten Commandments. And uh, if you're a theologian, we're going to look at the first table of the Decalogue. How does that sound? Makes me sound kind of smart. And uh, we're going to look at the part today. You'll notice that in the commandments... There's this one part that deals solely with how the Israelis were to relate to God. And then it changes with honor your father and your mother to how they are to deal with others. It's kind of interesting that they do that because we know that the two great commandments are loving God and loving your neighbor. Well, we see that as it is laid out right here in this text. But we're just going to look at the one that has to deal with the Lord. Because I want to um, introduce this just a little bit different. Instead of just going through and taking each commandment and uh, telling you what it means, a lot of you already have a good idea of what that means. I want you to look at it and notice that when we get down to verse um, 2, notice that the very first thing is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Didn't they already know that? Hadn't they experienced that? And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes this. Now remember, when they're going from the Red Sea on in the wilderness... They don't have any Bibles. And sometimes I think that because we read in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, or we read in Exodus the story of how this happened, I think we kind of have the idea that maybe it was already written down and they could look it up for themselves. Remember, it hadn't been written yet. This is the account written uh, later on about what has happened. And so they're going through the wilderness and they're learning about God and they're learning who he is. They're learning about his power every single day, step by step, miracle by miracle, and just like with us, problem by problem, situation by situation. And so as they get to know their God, God takes his time as he introduces the law, the moral law of God. He says, I'm going to introduce myself to you. And I got to thinking that if you and I want to get it right and teach other people how to get it right in terms of knowing God, this is how we get to know him even through his law even through the commandments that he gives. So let's read these first. We're going to read uh, chapter 20, of course, verses 2 through 11. So I want you to follow along, and I want you to breathe a prayer. Lord, as I read this, reveal yourself in a fresh way to me. Reveal yourself in a fresh way to me. And here's what he says. I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. By the way, praise God for his everlasting mercy. Amen. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your uh, stranger who is within your gates. For six days, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And raised and rested, pardon me, the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so, as we look at those, and as the people of Israel looked at those things, what they saw is what God are we to worship? They had been exposed to a lot of gods. You remember back in those times polytheism ruled the day and everybody thought you were crazy if you thought there was only one god it couldn't possibly be just one god sun god moon god god of the stars god of storms god of weather all kinds of things like that and in fact they believed that gods were regional and so if uh, you had a war and uh, let's say that Egypt defeated some other country that was back then, Hittites or somebody like that, that that proved that the Egyptian gods were stronger than the Hittite gods. So what was their testimony when they conquered the Jews, making them slaves? Our gods are stronger than your God. And your one single God cannot possibly match up with all of our multiplicity of gods. And that's why we control you. That's why we have enslaved you. That's why even though you came and under Joseph, you know, had some favor for a while, over time, what happened? Egypt is vastly superior and our gods are vastly superior. So that's why we ruled over you. And so then you, it makes more sense why God didn't just come in and just set the Israelis free, why the plagues took place, and why the gods of Egypt were challenged, and even Pharaoh, thinking himself to be a descendant of the gods, would see himself utterly decimated by the hand of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so is uh, Egypt being totally humiliated and God showing his power uh, over the Egyptians in the wilderness. He does that for Israel as well, constantly showing his power over everything and everyone 
that might come their way. There's no God of the Red Sea that has to be appeased before they can go across. All you need is the word of Yahweh through Moses and the sea divides. Whenever there's no water, you don't need to appease the gods of the water, the water gods or the weather gods or anything like that. All you need is the word of Yahweh through Moses to strike the rock and water comes out in abundance. And over and over and over we see this. But we also see it even as God says to them uh, as he presents himself in the law, in the moral law. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the house of bondage. Therefore, here's what you are to do. Think of it like this. Number one, if you're going to worship anybody, you ought to worship a God who cares for you. When you think about God and the way he introduces himself here, he said, I'm your God, and I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. This is a God who cares so much about his people that he reveals himself to them and then he sets them free from their bondage and from their slavery. That's a God that you ought to worship. That's a sovereign God. That's a God who is not made up. That's a God who is not discovered. That's a God who is not somehow... Uh, happy that we're doing him some kind of a favor. This is the God who made everything, who controls everything, and everything happens his way and on his terms. And so what does he do? He cares so much that he shows up at different times, different places, saying things like this, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He makes covenants with people. He gives promises to people. He is the one who empowers his people. He is the one who fights battles for his people. He's the one who 400 years after Abraham remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, delivers Israel, and now is taking them back to that land that he promised them. This is a God who cares. This is not a God who simply forgets. This is not a God who is ambivalent toward his people. This is the God who cares. This is a God who comes and shows up through an 80-year-old shepherd who had to run for his life 40 years earlier. And he says to this old shepherd, Moses, go back and tell Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the, uh, the planet, let my people go. And you know what happened? When it's all said and done, Moses is leading out two million ex-slaves and Pharaoh is absolutely humiliated. Why? Because Yahweh is the God who cares. This is a God who loves. This is a God who is filled with mercy. This is a God who cares so much for you and for me that even when you and I could not redeem ourselves... He sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the sacrifice, not for his sins, but for our sins because of the great love and care that he has for us. There are other gods and goddesses out there. They're fake and they're demonically uh, empowered, I guess you would say. But they don't care. They don't love you or anyone else. They're takers. They are the ones who abuse. They are the ones who enslave. They are the ones that you can never appease. They are the ones who always demand more and more and more and more and more. But our God is the God who said, this is what I require. And then he is the one who meets the requirement himself. By dying on the cross for our sins. What a savior we have. What a God we have. When you think about the God who would care for us. And who would love us. Even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Let that sink in. 
Number two, when you're reading down through these verses, what kind of God should you worship? Well, today it's kind of popular to say, well, all gods are the same, and they're all just made up, and it doesn't really matter. And if there is a divine being, there are just different names for him. It doesn't matter. Some people call him Allah. Some people call him Buddha. Some people call him Lord Krishna. And, and you can go on and on and on. Isaac and I, as most of you know, have had the privilege of going to India on several occasions. And we were driving with uh, Jason, uh, Pastor Jason, who preached here one time. And we saw a temple and we said, uh, Pastor, what is that? And he goes, I have no idea. We must have looked puzzled. And he said, when you live in a country with what is it, 300 million gods and goddesses? He said, we can't possibly keep up with all of them. And he began to tell us about some of the ones he did know about. Talked about going to a temple of the rat god. How does that make you feel? The people would go there into a temple covered in rats they would eat their food there share it with the rats and they would lay down on the floor and let the rats crawl all over them bite them scratch them defecate on them you say why would they do that because in their minds, believing in reincarnation, being Hindus, those rats were their relatives, their ancestors. You got to treat them nice if you want their favor. You have that kind of God and you have that kind of religion and you think about all of that and think about all of the things that are all over the world. And you think about the fact that people today will say, well, it's all the same. It doesn't matter just as long as you worship something, just as long as you worship someone, just as long as you're sincere. What does the God of the Bible say about that? You shall have no other gods before me. You know what he is saying there? Not only worship a God who cares, but don't worship a God and don't be a part of a religion that says it doesn't matter. It all washes out in the end. It's all the same. Worship a God who demands exclusivity. In the Bible, the, we are told there is but one God. In the Bible, we are told there's only one way of salvation. Jesus Christ himself is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. How? Except through me. Boy, that is one of those things that is so uh, politically incorrect now. It is very intolerant. How dare you say anything like that? Folks, just to give you a little bit of backbone and standing, we didn't say that. We didn't come up with that. That's what is in the Bible. That's how God presents himself. He's not a wimp. He's not just one of many. He's not just a God who says, whatever you do will be fine, and however you approach me will be fine. God says, there's one God, and there's one way to come to me, and that is through the sacrifice of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is no other way. Are we right? That's what he said. And so when you worship a God that says, I'm the only God. And the only way to approach me is through 
the death, burial, and resurrection of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you're on a different path than anything else and anyone else in the world. You're going against the flow. Jesus said there are two ways. There's a narrow way and there's a broad way. Now, the broad way is going to be wide open. The broad way is going to be a little easier to travel because that's uh, uh, the direction of the flow, the momentum. If you've ever been maybe at a football game and there's 80,000 people going this way and you're trying to go that way, you know what that's like. That's what it's like when God saves you. He takes you off of that Broadway and turns you around and you're going upstream now. People get aggravated when you do that. And when you tell them that they're all going the wrong way, they really get aggravated at you for doing that. And it is hard. It's hard being on the narrow way. But that's the call of the Christian. There's an exclusivity in that. And it's not that we're better than anybody else. It's not that we think we're smarter than anyone else. It's because this is what God has said. No other gods before me. Now, he didn't say you just make a priority list. And as long as Yahweh is number one, then you can have whatever you want after that. It's not that at all. When he says in my presence, well, it'd be like this. I'm standing up here on this platform, okay, and you are in my presence. You're out there before me. And God is saying, no other gods before me. Why? Because there are no other gods. Exclusivity. Worship a God who cares. Worship a God that presents himself exclusively as the only God and the only Savior, the only way of redemption, the only deity, and all throughout the Bible, you have that. Thirdly, you ought to worship a God who's got a great name, a God who's got a powerful name, a God who has got an excellent name. And all throughout the Bible, one of the things you find out is that so many things were done in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, that cannot be explained any other way except the power of his name. You know, the Bible says there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. In fact, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that because of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened? Therefore, he was given a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we talk about somebody's name, Jesus told us we are to ask in his name. We're to pray in his name. Well, we may not quite understand that. Is that just a religious formula? Is that our postage stamp on our prayers? Uh, do you all remember snail mail? Do you remember those times when you would put a letter in the mail to a, maybe a friend or a relative or a grandparent or something like that? And when you were a little kid, you know, you would address that letter and you had to put the return address up at the top left-hand corner so that if it didn't get there, they knew where to send it back. And then you put the, uh, uh, the uh, main address, the person you were writing you know, down there in the middle. And then you had to put something in the top right-hand corner of the letter, which was called a... You guys are old. Really, really old, because you know that. A stamp, okay? And uh, maybe when you were a little kid, you just thought that maybe there was a drawer that your parents had, and it had several different stamps. You didn't really know the value of the stamp. You didn't know how much it cost to send a letter. 
you may not know now how much it costs to send a letter. And let's say that uh, this is back in the days when maybe it cost 10 cents. Is that fair? And you put a one cent stamp on the letter, what was going to happen? It's going to be returned. Postage due. Postage due is what they would say. They'd put that on there, right? And you had to get the postage right. Some people act like saying in Jesus' name is just putting the right stamp on the letter. Is that what that means? Because there are people that teach you that if you will say in the name of Jesus or in Jesus' name, you've got a special power and you can get anything you want, anytime you want it, and any way you want it. You ever heard anybody talk like that? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, back in the days when the Bible was written, to do something in the name of someone else meant that it was their will, their desire. And so, in old movies... Bad guy's running out. He's got a mask on, not over his mouth, but over his eyes. He's carrying a money bag out of the bank. And here comes the cop. And the cop's got his weapon out. And he says, stop in the name of the law. You know what he was saying? Not some mystical, magical formula. He was saying... I am commanding you to stop in the name of the law or by the will or the power or the authority or the desire of the law. I represent the law. Stop. Okay. Whenever you would have someone say, stop in the name of the king or in the name of King, whatever, you must pay your taxes or do that. That meant that they had the authority and the backing of the king. And they'd better be right. Because if you were to go out and to say, I come in the name of the king to collect 20% of everything you uh, own. And the king did not tell you to do that. You were going to lose your head. To say in the name of somebody meant that you had their backing and their authority. You know what to say in the name of Jesus means? I am praying this because I believe it matches with the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are some things you probably ought to be careful about praying. Dear Lord, I'm so sick of my husband. And I'm asking you, in the name of Jesus, to create a new husband. You ever heard anybody pray kind of like that? That doesn't match up with the will of God, does it? You can't do that. That's not what that means. Oh, Lord, I'm so sick of my boss. And I pray that you would kill him and give me a nicer boss. In the name of Jesus, I command this to... Is that the way we're supposed to pray? To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in line with his will, with his authority, with his power, with his permission. And that's why I can pray for somebody to be saved, and I pray in the name of Jesus... That's why I can pray for God to provide for my family in the name of Jesus. All of these things line up with the revealed will of God in his word. And that's what we're supposed to do because his name is the name. His name is the supreme name in the universe. And it is in his name that we pray. It is in his name that we live. It is under his authority and in his power that we minister. It is all of this wrapped up together in the name of the Lord. We live according to his plan, 
his purpose, his will, all of that. And how do we know what that is? Well, we go to the word of God and we live according to and we pray according to the word of God. And that's why God's not interested in you just simply making up your prayers and then twisting his arms with some type of magic formula or something like that. That's not the way that we are commanded to live and it's not the way we are commanded to pray. We pray according to his will, lining up with his plan, lining up with his purpose, lining up with his principles, because that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. And the name of Jesus is the name that is exalted above every other name. When you think about using the Lord's name in vain then, what does it mean? Using it for empty, thoughtless, blasphemous, selfish, deceptive purposes. You ever heard anybody just as a matter of course say, Oh God, I can't believe you're doing that. That's using the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. You know why? Thoughtless, empty, mindless, just throwing it out there. It's a great name. It's a name of power. It's a name of authority. It's a name of grace. It's a name of salvation. And they just throw it out. Oh, my God. I get so tired of hearing that. Everywhere I go, TV, grocery stores, just people talking in casual conversation. Did you read what God says about how we are to use his name? Never in vain. And he said he won't hold you guiltless if you use his name in vain. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? I promise I'm going to pay you back. I swear to God. And then they don't do it. Using God's name in order to lie, in order to appear to be truthful, in order to deceive, using a name of truth and power as a means of deceiving other people. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on with what it means to use the name of our God in, in vain. And this is what God is saying. Don't use this. Worship me because my name is great. My name is powerful, and my name has the backing of the sovereign of the universe. And whenever we do anything in the name of Jesus, and by the way, this would even include when you pray in church, when you sing some of the hymns that we sing in church, are we using God's name in vain because we don't think? Are we using God's name in vain because we really are doing it because we think it will get God to fulfill our will and our purposes and we try to manipulate God? And are we coming to church and do we say the things we say, sing the things we sing because we are trying to deceive God when he knows our hearts? And because we're trying to deceive other people because we sure wouldn't want them to think that we're pagans or anything, would we? And so what we do is we misuse the name of God and we use it for empty and deceptive and fleshly purposes. And that's, my friend, the farthest thing from worship that there can be. I want you to think about what you sing. I want you to think about what you pray. I want you to think about how you present yourself to other people and make sure it's done in an honest, thoughtful way and not using the name of the Lord in vain. You see, it may not be just that God is speaking about them outside of the walls of the church. He may be speaking as he was in Israel to the people. I am the Lord your God. Do not use my name in 
vain. Let's be serious about what we do. Let's be thoughtful and let's be honest about what we do. Is there an amen out there anywhere? That's what we are called to do. And if we're not going to do it, how dare we ever expect the Egyptians, quote unquote, to do that? This is a call for Israel, not a call for Egypt. And then the fourth thing, worship a God who is going to lead you into rest. What about the stuff about the Sabbath day? Well, let's just notice that when this is all brought up about worshiping on the Sabbath day, it points back to creation, doesn't it? God created everything in those six days, and the seventh day he rested. Well, when everything's been done, and everything's been created, it's kind of foolish to keep working, isn't it? So God set a pattern. Here's how I want my people, the Jewish people, to live. I want them to work, and I want them to rest. I want them to work, and I want them to rest. And that's going to be the pattern for their life. See, slaves don't ever get a day off, do they? Slaves have to work 24-7. And they have to work at the whim of their masters. And so now their ultimate master is saying, I'm giving you a day off. Six days, and then you have a day off. A day that you rest, and a day also that you worship me. Isn't it interesting, too, when you think about this pattern? Jesus comes to earth, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, and then what happens? He has a Sabbath, if you will, of rest in the tomb. Jesus is raised from the dead, and 40 days later, he goes to heaven, he puts his own blood on the mercy seat, and then what does he do? Something a priest had never done before. He sits down. Why? There's no need to keep offering the same blood over and over and over. His sacrifice was one time for all. And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that whenever you and I get saved, you know what happens to us? We enter into a permanent and a perpetual Sabbath. Why? Because our sin debt has been paid. Because we are not saved by our works, but we're saved by the grace of God through the sacrifice of Christ. And the book of Hebrews tells us that that was offered one time, one time, one time, one time. Because it pays for all of our sin and because it is sufficient and Christ will never be put to an open shame again. And so what do we do? We do what God did after creation. We rest, and we rest in him. And our rest is not just on one day of the week. Our rest is every day of the week. Our rest is for the rest of our lives and for eternity after this life is over. We rest in the Lord because, just like in creation, of what he has done and what he has done for us. So worship a God that will bring you into rest. How do we enter into that rest? Do we work for it? Do we earn it? Do we deserve it? Do we ritualize enough for it? Some people think that you get saved because you join a church or because you do enough work for the church. No, you get saved because of the grace of God working in your heart. Got a little thing here that measures my uh, oxygen. When I put it on my finger and turn it on, you know, it'll tell me what I'm doing. Because sometimes I get to breathing really, really, really hard. Sammy will come up and say, check your pulse ox. And I want to say, what do you mean? Because <laughs> I'll be breathing about like that. I'm doing fine. <laughs> Look what I'm doing. Look at the work that I'm doing. Look how much energy I'm putting into this. Look how I am literally wearing myself out trying to breathe. What do you mean? Check. Well, then I check, and I find out I'm not doing so well. The other day I checked it, and it was down in the 80s. That ain't good. My work was wearing me out, and it wasn't doing me any good. 
You know what I thought of? That's the way a lot of people are living their lives. They're busy joining churches. They're busy working with charities. They're busy trying to do all kinds of things, and they are literally wearing themselves out. And yet, when the Lord examines their heart and what's inside, they're found lacking. And that may be you today. That may be somebody watching today. I want to tell you, you've got to rest in Jesus and in what he has done. Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There's a rest for the people of God because Jesus has satisfied everything that God demands for salvation. You see, when the Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me, you have failed at that. I have failed at that. But Jesus never failed at that. When the Bible says that we are to worship God and worship him supremely and only, you and I have failed at that. There have been other times when I've, maybe when I was a kid, I wanted a bicycle more than I wanted Jesus. You've done that. We even do that as adults sometimes. We think that things will fulfill our lives. We think that positions will fulfill us. We think that people will make our lives really worth something. Jesus never did that. Jesus never did that. Jesus never took the word, uh, the name of, of the Lord in vain. And Jesus never failed to worship God and to rest in the Lord whenever the Sabbath came. Why? Because he was the perfect son of God. And here's the good news, folks. When you take the Ten Commandments, you're going to find you have failed, and that's the definition of sin. You're a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, except the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all of that. Why? Why did he do that? Well, he didn't need to. He's God. He could have just stayed in heaven. He came down to earth and he did that because you needed it. Because I need it. And he lived that for us so that when we trust in what he did on the cross as payment for our sins, God the Father says, I will accept his life and his righteousness on your behalf. And if you will trust in my son, and if you will trust in his shed blood for your sins and his resurrection, and if you will surrender to him as Lord, I will take everything he perfectly did and I'll put it on your sorry record so that you will have the righteousness of Christ as your own. And when that happens and his righteousness is on your record book, here's what you can do. Oh, I can rest. And when I fail, I come before the Lord, 1 John 1, 9. And I confess my sin. And the Holy Spirit reminds me. It's not my righteousness that saves me. It's the righteousness of Christ. And it's already been applied and I can say, oh, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. And I rest not in my promise to do better, but I rest in what Christ has done for me. He fulfilled all of the law perfectly for me. And that's put on my account through the blood of Christ on the cross. And that never changes. And I can go, oh. And those times when I come back and I say, oh, Lord, I've done it again. The Holy Spirit reminds me, I'm not saved by my works of righteousness. My sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. And you know what it also says? He remembers it no more. Oh. I can rest.
that when I stand before the Lord, I don't have to worry about Peter being at the gate, opening up books and trying to figure out what I've done. I'll be as welcome in heaven as Jesus Christ is. Why? Because I am in him and he is in me. And his righteousness, all of it, has been put on my account. And so I can come to you today and say, I know I'm going to heaven and I'm certain of it. Certain of it. You know why? Because I have a God who cares and delivered me from bondage. He's the same God that can save your soul. He can deliver you from drugs. He can deliver you from alcohol. He can deliver you from anger. He can deliver you from pornography. This is a powerful God who cares about your life and can set you free. I can come to you today and say, I know I've got it right because I have trusted in the true and the living God. There is no other way to heaven and there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus is Lord of all. And I can come here today and tell you it's a powerful name. He's a powerful God and his name, when I called upon it, I didn't call upon it back in 1982 in vain. I called upon the one who loves me and gave himself for me. My name had already been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and I didn't even know it. And I called upon his name, and he answered me. He answered me. And according to his great name, he gave me salvation full and free, and pardon all of my sin. And all of this happened because of who he is. And he led me into his rest. Praise his holy name because it is a permanent and eternal rest. And I live in a perpetual Sabbath because of what Jesus has done for me. And that's how we know to worship the true and the living God in the way that he has revealed himself through his law. Do you know him? Do you know him, those of you on live stream? If you don't, you need to trust him today. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. Will you call upon him? Let's pray together. Lord, my prayer today is that there'll be men, women, boys, and girls to be convicted of their sin. They've fallen short of the glory of God. They haven't even been able to live up just to these four things we've talked about today. I pray you would save them. And I pray your Holy Spirit would draw them to the cross of Christ. And I pray that they would receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, trust in his payment on the cross as the payment for all of their sins. And, O oh Lord, give them rest in your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.